We are on part 11. So uh, today we're going to do an overview of chapter 4. Um, we're going to talk about Cain and Abel, the first two children that were born. Uh, we're going to talk about the first murder. Uh, we're going to talk then about God judging and banishing Cain. But first a little review. So last time we finished up uh, chapter 3, we saw God hand out the punishments for sin. Uh, he starts with the serpent. And he punishes the serpent first, um, and then in the midst of but in the midst of the punishments, though he has the promise of a seed that will crush Satan's head, uh, and then he he punishes Eve, uh, the multiplying a child's birth. Uh, your desire will be for your husband. We went through this uh, discussion of what does it mean that your desire will be for your husband, and uh, if you dig down into the Hebrew. It is an indication of the, the conflicts that sinful human beings will have in the marriage relationship that, um, that the, the woman will seek to usurp a man's authority within marriage. That's what's contained in those, that Hebrew phrase. She will, and uh, according to this uh, commentator, Fruchtenbaum, uh, the woman will desire to rule over her husband who is to master her. She will seek to gain authority over the husband. And the, the Hebrew is parallel to what we'll see today in chapter 4, verse 7, with uh, sin seeking to, um, uh, to rule over Cain, but he's supposed to master it. That, that's exactly parallel Hebrew structure. Um, then, he go, then he turns to Adam, God turns to Adam, and he curses the ground. Not, not Adam first, but he curses the ground. Uh, because Adam had been given dominion over the creation, the creation was his responsibility. When Adam fell, the entire creation was cursed. We see that in Romans chapter 8 very explicitly, that the, the creation itself is groaning because of sin in the world. And then uh, the, the curse to, that he will have to toil to eat, and there will be thorns and thistles, and then the physical death, uh, that, that you were taken from the ground, dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And, of course, there would be no point in that being part of the curse for sin if physical death was already around before that. So this is a strong indication we have that there was no such thing as physical death. There would not have been physical death without sin. And the first animal death, of course, occurs almost immediately because God makes garments of skin. And so in order to get skin, that's an animal. Uh, that's the first death. And then he throws them out of the garden. Uh, so there's, yes, go ahead. Question? Sure. Sorry, alert. Um, <laughs> is this when animals stop eating plants? Mm-mm. No. That's, that's not, yeah. That's all I <laughs> Yeah, we'll get to that in, in Genesis chapter 9 next quarter. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so uh, and we have a bad news, good news story. Uh, and that's the typical order. Bad news, good news. So we have Adam's curse and Christ's cure. Uh, one man and one man. Um, there's a parallel drawn, especially in the book of Romans, chapter 5, between uh, sin and death coming into the world by one man, Adam, and life coming into the world by one man, Christ. And so this imputation of sin. So Adam and Eve had a bad day in the garden. They were punished for it. What does that have to do with me? Um, and so this is the doctrine of the imputation of sin. And we looked at this. We looked at this chart from the Moody Handbook of Theology. Um, that there are, have been various views, and that there are two views that we looked at in particular. 
federal view and Augustinian view. And we took a look at some of the details of that, the federal view that, um, uh, that Adam was the federal head of the human race, everybody's descended from him, and therefore he represented the entire human race, and when he fell, the entire human race fell, um, and that's uh, how sin is imputed down from uh, Adam to the entire human race, and you get suffering and death for the entire human race. And, um, and the, the strongest argument or the strongest reason for belief in this view of the imputation of sin is the passage in Romans 5, which gives there's a direct parallel between uh, Jesus and uh, Adam uh, in terms of one man bringing sin into the world, one man bringing life into the world. Uh, the other view is the Augustinian view, taught by people like Calvin, Calvin and Luther and Shedd and Strong. Uh, and that is the view that, uh, in a real physical sense, we were in the body of our ancestor when he sinned. And so we were there. And that view appeals to the story of Abraham and Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7, which we went through last time, the fact that uh, Levi was in the body of his ancestor when Abraham gave the tenth to Melchizedek. And uh, so that's the, that's the Augustinian uh, view. And, and we brought up, the, of course, the chief uh, weakness of the Augustinian view is it, it erodes the, it kind of, it erodes the analogy a little bit in Romans chapter 5. And so I think that is a weakness of the Augustinian view. But uh, but there, both views have been uh, are, are uh, have been um, taught by good and godly men. And the thing that I pointed out last time that I, I want you to, to notice is in column three, what what it means for humanity is total depravity and sin, sin and guilt are imputed. Total depravity, sin and guilt are imputed for both of those of those views. Yes, I've been pondering this this past week. Uh, a couple of thoughts turn around in my head. One way is, is it possible that you could hold both of those views at the same time? In other words, you could be an Adam and you could have it imputed through um, your lineage, your corruption that you get inherited. Yeah, I suppose you could. You could believe the Augustinian view while also believing that Adam was the federal head of uh, the entire human race. Yes, you could believe that. I, one thing that came to me, though, and I kind of was hoping that you could sanity check this, is would either of those views impute sin to Jesus? So, um, of course, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So, in, in that sense, he didn't have a human father. Right. And so, his conception is different from all of our conceptions, everybody's conception since Cain. Um, and that makes him different. Um, and so that, that makes him know, instead of being conceived by the will of a man or the will of a husband, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, and so therefore he is different. You couldn't then say that he was in the lines of Adam? Like would... Well... I mean, I suppose somebody could make that argument, but no, that's not that's not our understanding. That's not my understanding of what it means in the story of the incarnation. Yeah. Okay. Because 
that 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 in the loins is called the seminal view. That's the other word for it, right. from from semen, yeah. and that there's nothing like that involved in Jesus' conception. Yeah, I, I think that that's potentially not a weakness of the seminal view, because if sin is imputed that way to mankind, it would have to be imputed to Christ. No, because there was no semen involved in Christ's, Christ's conception. Okay, uh, so a little, so there there are some. This is a this is a thing that theologians have struggled with over millennia. Um, but I think the important thing is the two main views, Federal view and Augustinian view, get to the same place in terms of where we stand as human beings. Um, the biblical anthropology comes to the same point: total depravity, sin and guilt imputed to me. Okay. Uh, and then we had the, the, we talked a little bit about the Proto Evangelium uh, in chapter fifteen, in verse fifteen, uh, where we have this, the the promise of a coming Messiah. Uh, so the woman, of course, is um, he's talking to Eve, but we know from reading the rest of the story that it's not Eve who gives birth to the Messiah; it's Mary, uh, thousands of years later. Uh, so it's talking about Jesus, uh, and there's enmity and hostility between Satan and Christ, uh, the seed of the serpent, evil men, uh, strike at the heel of the Savior. We have evil men like Judas doing the, the bidding of, uh, of evil, the Pharisees, the crowd, the Romans, uh, they all conspire to put Jesus to death. Uh, but that's not the end of the story, uh, because he rises on the third day, uh, crushes the head of Satan. So that's what we talked about last time. So that wrapped up chapter 3. We end up with Adam and Eve out of the garden and fallen and cursed. Now, uh, chapter 4. So before we go into chapter 4, um, I have a, a one-slide depiction of the history of the universe from the beginning to the end. So this is the history of the universe from the beginning to the end. You have a perfect creation. Sin comes into the world and brings with it death, disease, pain, and suffering. God has already on hand a plan of redemption uh, through Christ. And in the end, he restores all things. We have a new heaven and a new earth where there is no presence of sin or death or disease or pain or suffering. History of the universe in one slide. Um, Now, the structure of Genesis we talked about at the very beginning is these toledots, and we've been... Uh, in the very first Toledot, which is the Toledot of heaven and earth, that means what came forth from the heavens and earth. And that has been the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And, but it also includes, in this first Toledot, the story of what happens to their children. Um, and then we'll start a new Toledot with chapter 5. Um, so, outline of our study of the, uh, the children of Adam and Eve. So, part 1, we'll go to the first half of chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 to 15. Is an, first, we'll do a little bit of an overview of the whole chapter. We'll talk about Cain and Abel, uh, how they were born, the first two children, uh, some curious things about how they were named and, and the structure of the Hebrew in the naming. We'll talk about their two different sacrifices. They had uh, two, two sacrifices that were different. One was accepted, one was rejected. We'll talk about the first murder. Right there within the first family, uh, there's the first murder. Uh, we'll talk about God questioning Cain in a similar way to how he questioned uh, uh, Adam and Eve. 
And then God judging and banishing Cain. And then next week we'll do part two. We'll talk about the line of Cain. We'll talk about the line of Seth. And we'll talk about the end of the first Toledot uh, next week. So uh, we'll read through the whole scripture. So I'm going to go all the way through the whole chapter just to give you a, a real brief overview. So if you can open up a Bible or a device that you can uh, tune into Genesis chapter 4 and follow along. So I'm going to read this. This is in NASB, and um, I'm going to show, after we're done reading this, some curious things that are, um, there's some major departures in what this English says and what the Hebrew says, and we're going to talk about those things. Okay, so first we're going to read the English. Um, Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methusiel, and Methusiel became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubalcain the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, 
and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So that's the chapter, and we're only going to go through in detail the first half. Um, And so as an overview... Uh, Cain is the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, the older brother of Abel and Seth. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a shepherd. Abel offers the best of his flock to God, and God looks favorably on Abel's sacrifice. Cain offers some of his crops to God, and God does not look favorably on Cain's sacrifice. Cain becomes angry and murders Abel. And then when God confronts Cain, he responds, Am I my brother's keeper? God curses Cain and casts him away to the land of Nod. God gives Cain a mark, which warns all people not to harm him. And then we have a little uh, genealogy at the very end of um, from Cain's line down to Lamech, the seventh generation from Adam. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to um, uh, Genesis chapter 5. So uh, Lamech is the seventh generation from Adam and an example of extreme wickedness. And when we get to Seth's genealogy, the seventh generation from Adam is Enoch, and he is an extreme example of righteousness that God whooshes up to heaven. So by the seventh generation, we have these extremes. Extreme evil, a guy that writes a poem about and brags about killing people. And on the other hand, we have a guy that walks with the Lord and is taken up into heaven. Okay, uh, within the first seven generations. So let's, let's dig in and take a look at these uh, first few verses here. So in uh, verse 1, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. That's what the English says. So uh, in a minute, I'll, we'll get into the Hebrew a little bit. So, she conceived the first child to come from natural generation. So Adam had been made from dust. Eve had been made from the rib of Adam. This is the first child born in the normal, in the, the natural biological way. Um, and that's Cain. She names him Cain. Uh, his name in Hebrew is a wordplay. Um, Cain uh, sounds like Eve's expression, I have gotten. I have gotten or acquired a man. Um, Sounds similar in Hebrew. Um, and then she calls him Ish, man. And so she recognizes that this little baby is going to grow up into a man and, and is common to mankind. The same word for uh, man that's going to be the, the, the word for every kind of man. She recognizes this little baby is going to grow up into a man by using the term Ish. And then they have the second son, Abel. So I want to take a little detour, though, into the Hebrew. So the Hebrew doesn't actually say all that stuff that we have in, in English. Uh, the Hebrew just says, Adam knew his wife Eve. Um, 
it doesn't say all that stuff about having relations. That's an English euphemism. We throw in the English euphemism to, uh, to try to do a faithful translation of the Hebrew idiom, which just knew. He knew Eve. Um, and then it, and then it all, all it says in Hebrew after that is, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. That's all it says in Hebrew. There's nothing about child, man, child. It just says man, ish. And there's nothing about with the help of the Lord in the Hebrew either. There's, uh, n- there's nothing about with the help of in the Hebrew. It just says, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. That's all the Hebrew says. Uh, and then the, the, the parallel phrase after that, and she gave birth to his brother Abel, is an exact Hebrew parallel. I have, I have born a brother Abel, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. Uh, that's what the Hebrew says. Um, and it sure looks like, from the actual Hebrew, that Eve thought that she was giving birth to the Messiah. That there was a promise in chapter 3 that there was going to be a Messiah. She has a child. That must be it. This Cain must be the Messiah. I have gotten a man, Yahweh. That's what the Hebrew says. Uh, for About the birth of Cain. Um, and so there's, there's no doubt from the Hebrew structure that brother and Abel are one of the same. And the exact same structure is man and Yahweh. Brother, Abel, man, Yahweh, uh, in those two Hebrew phrases. Um, so if you strip away the ex- extra English that we've added in there, uh, that's what she, Eve actually said. I have gotten the man, Yahweh. That was, that was the word, that's the words that are written down in the Hebrew text. Uh, we've added some words around there in English um, that I'm, I'm not convinced belong there. So, for example, um, there's this particle called etz in Hebrew. And it's, a, it's normally an untranslated marker of an object. So, the, the, the Hebrew says, um, the man knew... His wife Eve. That's all it says. So, um, and that particle etz right there before wife Eve up there um, is just a marker that the object of his knowing is Eve. So the object of knowing here is, so up here at the top you've got uh, the man knew and then etz wife Eve. The object of knowing was Eve. And then you've got the exact same particle, etz, for Cain. So gave birth to Cain. So the object of her giving birth is Cain. And then you've got the same particle here. And so she got a man, and the object of her getting, etz, Yahweh. So the object of her getting is Yahweh. The object of Adam's knowing is Eve, the object of birthing is Cain, and the object of getting is Yahweh. The exact same structure all throughout that Hebrew dependent clause, etz, and then the object of the verb that precedes. Uh, and the same thing in the next, in, in chapter, in verse 2 as well, etz, able. The object of birthing in verse 2 is able, etz, able. Um, and so. The Hebrew structure sure seems to be saying uh, that Eve 
indicating that Eve believed that she was giving birth to Yahweh, that she was that she was paying attention, uh, and that she had some understanding of the messianic prophecy that she had heard God give. Um, anyway, that's what it looks like in the Hebrew. The, you don't see that so much in the English. When you're, here's what the English says. So the English says, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. So in that sentence, there is no Hebrew that says anything about child. There is also no Hebrew that says, any, that says anything about with the help of in that Hebrew phrase. So that's all been added by translation to try to give a better understanding and I think that's not, they haven't quite done a, a good job of that. So I'm not the first person to notice that. Uh, I didn't come up with this on my own. Martin Luther said the same thing in his commentary 500 years ago. So Martin Luther's commentary says the same thing I just told you. That's what Martin Luther said 500 years ago. Uh, and that's what uh, Baum says in his commentary as well. Um, that the, the, the attempts to make this uh, sound better in English have, in some ways obscured what the Hebrew makes more clear that Eve mistakenly thought that she was giving birth to this promised uh, crusher of Satan's head. Yeah. So you would think a more proper English translation would be, I have gotten a man of the Lord along those lines? Could be, yeah. Uh, the, so the King James leaves it as new. Uh, does it, the, the King James is a kind of a more... Um, uh, direct translation of the Hebrew, I think, in in this case. Uh, but uh, yeah, of the Lord, could you could put of the Lord, but etz is normally a completely untranslated particle. Normally, there's no you, when you when you have etz, it's just a marker for the object. Whatever's after it, reading from right to left, is the object of the verb that's in that clause. And etz then is not translated in any way. You don't put of or for or to or with or anything. There's no translation at all. Just a marker to show that what comes after is the object of the verb which comes before. So literally, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. That's that's what it says. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so that's something to think about, that uh, there... There was, even at the very beginning, there was this idea that God had made a promise here, and we, we think he's going to fulfill it. And we see that as a theme in the Bible, that God has made a promise, and people have misunderstood the timing in certain cases. Uh, Abraham and Sarah, for example. God had made a promise there was going to be a son, so there's got to be a son right now. Um, God had made a promise of a seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. So that's got to be the very first one that, that she has, that Eve has, right? Not somebody thousands of years in the future. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, I just, just because I think you're making a, a, a point of it, I just want to understand. And it can't be, and it can't be translated in terms of addressing the Lord in saying that? Like, as in, like, I have gotten a man, the Lord. You know what I mean? uh, no, because that particle etz is a marker of an object. So it marks off that whatever comes next is the object of the action that's been uh, uh, the action verb that's that's come before. So the and the action verb was gotten. I have gotten. Um, and so what was the object of that gotten? And it was it's Yahweh. 
I have gotten this man Yahweh. Um, and, it's, and, and it's the same structure as I have born his brother Abel. I've gotten the man Yahweh. I've born his brother Abel. It's exactly parallel in the Hebrew. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, I think it's just an interesting thing that that's the way the Hebrew is, is written. Yeah, go ahead. <clears throat> Yeah, so we're going to talk about that. So Eve, um, <laughs> the, Abel's name, when she gives Abel's name, she's under, she understands um, that she's got it wrong uh, with Cain. Uh, <laughs> because uh, a- Abel's name is, um, I forget what the exact translation is, but it's, a, it's an indication that she was arrogant in thinking that Cain was the Messiah. Uh, the, the naming of Abel. By the time by the time she has the second one, she's realized no, that's not it. And then certainly when when Cain goes out and murders his brother, yeah, they they really understand. No, this is this is not the not the Messiah we were looking for um, when he when he murders his brother for sure. Yeah. So yeah, she has this understanding when and you can kind of put yourself in Eve's shoes. She's been promised that. A seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan, and there she has this. She has this baby, and that must be what God's talking about. Um, and she's kind of triumphant there. She's gotten a man, and that's the the, the man that uh, Yahweh is talking about. This is the the Yahweh's uh, that's going to strike the uh, the head of. The, she thinks that's it, um, and then she has another one and realizes no. So they were told to multiply and fill the earth in uh, Genesis chapter one. Adam's told you're supposed to multiply and, and fill the earth, but they had never gotten to that uh, in their unfallen state. So Cain is born after the fall. And so unfortunately for the rest of us, all their children were conceived after the fall, and as we talked about last time, inherited their sin nature. So later on in Genesis chapter 5, we'll see that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Um, Genesis 5.4, they had other sons and daughters. Um, there's a man named Titus Flavius Josephus, usually just referred to by as Josephus. Uh, he lived from 37 A.D. to 100 A.D., so he was born shortly after Jesus died. And he, so he was alive during the t- time of the early church. So the time of Paul, the time of Peter, the time of John, when the early church was spreading through the Roman Empire, this man was alive. And he wrote an a historical account called The Antiquity of the Jews, which he published in 93 A.D. And so... The Antiquity of the Jews goes all the way back to creation. It talks about uh, the events of the world from the beginning up until uh, his day. And so um, after introducing Cain and Abel in this book, Antiquity of the Jews, he writes, Adam and Eve had also daughters. And then he's got a footnote. And in Josephus's footnote, he says, the number of Adam's children, as says the old tradition, was 33 sons and 23 daughters. So Evidently, there's an ancient tradition of the Jews that puts a number to Adam and Eve's sons and daughters, 33 sons and 23 daughters. Now, that's not in the scripture. All the scripture says is they had other sons and daughters. So sons, plural, daughters, plural. They definitely had multiple sons and daughters other than Cain and Abel and Seth. But the ancient Jewish tradition written down by, so uh, uh, Josephus is writing 2,000 years ago. In Josephus' time, it was an ancient Jewish tradition 
that Adam and Eve had 33 sons and 23 daughters. Okay, uh, and so then we continue with the narrative. Uh, Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Uh, it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portion. So this is the first passage of many where God kind of overturns the primogenitor, the importance of the firstborn son. Uh, so he lists uh, Abel first. Abel's profession is listed first, not Cain. Cain was the firstborn, but he lists Abel first in this, uh, uh, in this passage. Uh, and we see that come up over and over again, uh, primarily with J- Jacob and Esau. Um, but it, it's, uh, it happens on a number of occasions uh, where there's, it's not... The, the ancient tradition in all those old cultures was the primogeniture, the firstborn son uh, was the position of preeminence. But then we see in the biblical narrative that it's not always the firstborn son uh, that God chooses. Um, so, yeah, so... Uh, for example, David's line comes through Judah, who's not the firstborn son of Jacob. And so Christ's lineage is not through the firstborn son of Israel. Uh, it's through Judah. <clears throat> but it is through the first wife, uh, which I think is important to note. Uh, Jacob tacks on a bunch of extra wives, but the, the, the seed line down to Christ is through the first wife. Um, so Abel's occupation is, uh, is first. It's, he's a keeper of flocks. The Hebrew for flocks there includes both sheep and goats. So he most likely would have had sheep and goats in his flock. Uh, Cain became a tiller of the ground. Now there's nothing wrong with being a tiller of the ground. And nothing in the scripture says that it was bad for uh, uh, Cain to be kill- tilling the ground. Um, he was following in his father Adam's footsteps. So Adam's, Adam was tilling the ground. The firstborn, Cain, follows in the father's footsteps, tilling the ground. The secondborn does something different. He keeps flocks. So the Hebrew phrase that's translated in the course of time indicates that there was a set time uh, that could have been a, a time of the day or a day of the week or a certain month or whatever, but it it's, it's indicates that there was a time for sacrifices. Uh, that phrase, in the course of time, already known to Adam and his family. Now, we have no indication, no, the Bible doesn't tell us what that was or how they knew, how did, um, but we do, have, we do have this indication that it was fairly normal for God to just walk up and talk to these people, uh, because God walks up and talks to Adam and Eve in the garden, and they don't, uh, they don't react in shock, they don't fall down on the ground. Uh, we'll see you here in a minute that God comes up and starts talking to Cain, and he doesn't fall down on the ground. He doesn't react in shock. It seems like it's normal for God to just walk up and talk to them. And so um, we, we, we don't get an indication of how they knew they were supposed to do sacrifices. But it's clear from the text that they did know that they were supposed to do sacrifices. And this phrase here in the course of time indicates that they knew that there was a certain time when they were supposed to do sacrifices. So Adam and his family knew they were supposed to do sacrifices. Uh, so note that animals would not have been kept for meat since Genesis 1.29 was still in force. So there had been no revocation of Genesis 1.29 that you're supposed to eat plants. We'll see that that is officially revoked in Genesis chapter 9. So when we get there, we'll talk about that. 
But Genesis 1, 29 is still in effect, so you're not allowed to eat. So what's he doing keeping these flocks, if not for meat? Well, goats produce milk. So they could have been milking the goats and drinking the milk. Um, sheep produce wool for clothing. So they could have been making clothing and other things out of the wool from the sheep. And, of course, they knew they were supposed to give sacrifices. And so they had to have animals for sacrifice. So for all those reasons, we have able keeping flocks. So uh, obviously they were also used for sacrifices. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think, this isn't said in scripture, do you think they continued the idea of making skins for clothing also? Possible. So, and how would that have worked? So if you have to sacrifice an animal for these sacrifices and what you're really interested in is the fatty parts, uh, which is what it says, the fat portions, then the skin would have been left over. And so you, you could have made skins from the animals that were sacrificed. So yeah, they could have still made skin clothing without killing animals for any other reason but sacrifice. Yeah, could be. Kind of like taking this all the way through, if flies were around, they would have, they, they would have been eating, and, and vultures would have been eating the carcasses cleaning up afterwards. I'm just thinking about yeah, so, uh, what I know today and how that might yeah. be different back then. Yeah, so there's there's obviously some changes in the way things um, operate between with the way they were then and the way they are now. Um, and so God made some big changes after the flood. So after the flood, people were told they could eat meat. And so most likely the animals did too after the flood. Uh, but before the flood, that didn't happen. And, and so there have been many objections to that raised by people in the secular world well what about lions uh you know what about all these things that are carnivores now is it possible how could they possibly have eaten plants before but we do have examples uh for example there's a vegetarian lion in the zoo uh and the lion eats plants and is perfectly happy eating plants um and so most uh, we have good examples of things that are now carnivores that even now can survive just fine on vegetables and plants. People, for example, can survive just fine on vegetables and plants. I could probably do with a few more vegetables and plants myself. Um, so yeah, so there are some things that you, that you have to think through, and how, did, how was it, and, and how did it work? But um, there have been, there are good examples, even today, of things that are carnivores now that are just fine eating plants. But it's a good question to think through, and it's a good, uh, there's been a lot of research done. And so if you go to creation.com or you go to answersgenesis.com, you can type in in their search window, what about carnivores? And they've got 100 articles with scientific research that's done to show that even today these carnivores can survive on plants. Good question, though, and a question that you may very well get if you're, if you're explaining what you believe about the Bible, and they're like, oh, that's nonsense. What about carnivores? Do they have a, so, you haven't gotten here yet, but Adam lives for 900 years. Yep. Uh, so we've got a century of time, and I would imagine between all that time before the flood, animals have been dying also. Yeah, so, yep. I mean, yep. it won't last more than 17 years today. I don't know. Maybe it lasts longer. Right. Yes. So yes, animals are dying. Uh, people are dying. 
you know, Adam dies, his descendants all die, everybody dies. So after the fall, everybody dies. And so, yes, we, we assume that we can see now that animals die, just like people die. And so we assume that from the fall on, just like from the fall on people die, from the fall on animals die too. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah, we'll come back to this. Um, we can come back to this subject in, in, in subsequent lessons as well. Uh, so we have these two different, they have two different, these boys have two different occupations. Uh, and, and by the way, we don't, uh, we don't know how old they are at this point. But the Bible tells us when Seth is born, Adam is 130. When Seth is born, Adam's 130. And so it's possible that these boys are already something of the order of 100 years old when this happens. So uh, when, when Eve gives birth to Seth, she talks about him being a replacement for Abel, who Cain slew. And that sounds like that's something that just recently happened. But then we find out in Genesis chapter 5 that Adam was 130 when Seth was born. And so um, if you put all that kind of timeline together, th these kids are not like 16 years old, most likely, based on that timeline. They're like 100. Um, and there are lots and lots of other brothers and sisters around. And it could have been a lot of these sacrifice cycles happening. Yes, too. a lot of sacrifice cycles happened before this. And which leads us to believe that um, uh, that Cain got tired for some reason of doing it God's way, and rebelled against doing it God's way, for reasons that are not explained in, in the scripture. So Abel's saving faith was demonstrated outwardly by his bringing the right sort of offering, blood to cover sins. Cain did not have the proper faith or belief, which manifested itself in the improper offering. So, this is the most important part about what we're going to say today. We come to God on His terms, and His terms alone. We do not have the authority to make up our own path to salvation. And so that's what's happening here. There's one and only one path to God. Abel was following God's path that God had laid out. Cain decided that he could make his own rules and follow his own path. Uh, to salvation. Uh, Jesus states this emphatically in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Totally exclusive that God has set up a method of redemption, of redeeming to himself a people, and nobody has the authority to set that aside or make up their own rule. And so we've talked about this issue uh, in several classes before, but it's the most important issue. Uh, this issue of authority. Who has authority to make the rules? And so we've talked about this in other uh, circumstances and in other situations and for other issues, but it applies all the way across the board. So, for example, uh, God said that he made them male and female. And so no one has the authority to... Um, to make up new rules for what it means to be a male or a female or how many genders there are. Uh, God instituted marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And so nobody has the authority to make up other rules about what constitutes marriage. So it's an, an issue of authority. God as creator 
has the authority to make rules for his creation, and nobody has the authority to set those rules aside. And so we saw that, we see that with male and female, we see that with marriage, and we see that here, most importantly, in salvation. In, in how, what are the rules for approaching a holy God? For What are the rules for a fallen and unrighteous person to approach a holy and righteous God? And so here in, in, the, in the post-fall world, um, in this first generation, this first family, Adam and Eve and their children, God has told them that they're supposed to bring sacrifices of blood. We don't get that. We don't get the details of that, but obviously that's what's happened. Can, Abel follows the, the rules that God has laid down for approaching a holy God. Cain disregards those rules, makes up his own rules, and it goes badly for Cain, as it will always go badly uh, for anyone who sets aside God's rules. Um, and Jesus says it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So, but Cain was angry with God that God would not permit him to make his own rules. He, he wanted to bring what he wanted to bring. And, and why wasn't his, you know, his produce just as good as the, as the blood of the lamb? Um, and so th- this is the same attitude that leads people to, uh, to say things like, um, all paths lead to God, and I can have my own way for coming to God. Yes? I just um, am confused. So I always thought that um, Abel's offering was um, pleasant to the Lord because of its being the first, the best, and that Cain just gave in a very, uh, well, I'm not, you know, Yes, I, I think that's right. I think you can see that from the rest of Scripture that that uh, that the it's a blood sacrifice that's required, and that other nothing else will satisfy. Um, so yes, I think that's that's now that could be that that Cain that Abel uh, that Cain was also not giving the best of his fruits and vegetables. But the the real difference between the sacrifices is one is a blood sacrifice and one is not. Um, yeah. So um, he, he, so you know it's it's we have to grope a little bit because there's no explicit scripture that tells us and God said this is the sacrifice you got to make. Like like we get in some of the um, uh, some of the when Moses lays down a, a system for sacrifices, there's there's a lot of very specific things. Bring a bull, bring a goat. You know, you got the the whole list of sacrifices that have to be made, um, and the sprinkling of blood on the altar. There's very specific details. Now, for these sacrifices, we don't get that kind of detail. We we don't get to see that, but we see from the rest of Scripture that that Abel was doing what God had said, and Cain was not. And I'll show you some other scriptures from the, the New Testament that that uh, that show this, that we can be certain. Yeah, go ahead. Do you think we can inference that there was, the sacrifices were for ongoing sins of children, Adam and Eve, and the fact that it was done regularly, and not for the original sin, 
regularly. Yeah, so it was more like the regular sacrifices that we see later in the Old Testament, that there was a, you know, there was a regular schedule of sacrifices that are laid out in the Mosaic Law. Uh, well, I'm but, getting at them, them sitting on some sort of regular basis, it's just not recorded in Scripture. Well, yeah, we don't know. So we don't know what, what, what were Adam and Eve doing. You know, Adam and Eve don't show up in, in Genesis chapter 4, so we don't know what they're doing. Um, well, at the very end, we get that they have Seth. But we, we don't, they, there's no discussion of Adam and Eve and their sacrifices and what was the family life like. We don't get any of that. We don't get to see any of that in Scripture. Okay, yes? Just quickly, is it also possible that up until this time, that they were both offering animal sacrifices, and this one time he said, "Yeah, really I, I think uh, yes." It, well, of course, it doesn't say, right. so we're only speculating. Right. But it, that makes sense to me mm-hmm. from the timeline that we get from the rest of Scripture. The fact that Seth was born when Adam was 130, and so, and and the fact that there's a wife readily available for Cain when he gets sent to the land mm-hmm. of Nod. So we'll talk about that. We can talk about that now if you want. Who, where did Cain get his wife? His sister. All right. It had to be one of his sisters. And his sisters were the daughters of Adam and Eve. So there had to be daughters of Adam and Eve around that were already grown up to the age where they could be married by the time Cain was sent off. And so that, that seems to indicate to me that, there was, that this, you know, this murder wasn't done when Cain and Abel were like 16 and 14. But it also indicates uh, to me that they didn't wait until they were 100 to get a wife. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so if you live 900 and something years, you don't have to rush into, <laughs> into yeah, marriage. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. So, um, it, we'll see when we get to the genealogies that there are some varying ages with, with which we, uh, we have the birth of a son. Now, there's, there's, no, there's no indication in Scripture about whether each of the sons that we're following in the seed line is the first. Uh, all, all those, all the generations that we see, it says that, and they had other sons and daughters, and it doesn't say what order. The person that's named in there is the first or the tenth or the hundredth child of that person, and so it that tells us the age of that father when he had that son. So that doesn't tell you when he got married. Uh, he could have gotten married years and decades before that son was born. So yes, they could have been married for a long time. And so Adam and Eve were married when they were really young. So like days old. Think about that. Adam and Eve were like, you know, seven days, seven or eight days old, ten days old, and they were married. Right? Because Adam, Adam was created full grown. Eve, Eve was created full grown. Um, they, if you looked at them, you would have thought they were some sort of age, but they weren't. They were only a few days old. And they were married. And then... When he's 130, he gives birth to Seth. We'll see that um, at the end of chapter 4. Well, we'll see in chapter 5 the age he was when they had Seth. Uh, So, yeah, and we'll take a look at, uh, we'll take a look at a lot of these things as we go along, especially, and so I'm going to, I'm going to, unfortunately, I won't be here uh, for chapter 5. I'm going to be in Japan on a business trip. So next week we're going to do chapter 4. Um, the end of chapter 4, and then the week after we'll do chapter 5, and I won't be here. So uh, Pastor Gabe has graciously agreed to take us through chapter 5. 
Okay, so um, any other questions before I go on? Yes, go ahead. So um, I wouldn't say exactly that because when we get to, um, so we won't do it in this class, but when you read forward into Moses, there are grain offerings and drink offerings that are poured out for different purposes and different reasons. But for the atonement for sin, for the, the sacrifices that are for sin, those are always blood offerings. Um, so no, there's not. And so we don't get that. We don't get to peek behind the curtain. But we do get some New Testament um, verses, which we're going to get here to in a minute, that tell us that Abel was being obedient and righteous and Cain was being disobedient and unrighteous in in their actions, their actions of bringing these particular sacrifices. And so that tells us that there were rules and that Cain didn't follow them and Abel did. And there were actions, not attitudes? So, yeah, so the, and we'll see that. I'll, I'll show you. Um, I'll show you. I'll show you specifically. I'll answer that question with some specific verses here in a minute. So let me just continue. Hold that thought. I'll, I'll get back to that. So then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Uh, so this is once again, just like Adam. So Adam tries to hide from God, but God goes towards Adam. He goes and seeks him out. So, and, and again, God goes towards Cain. Cain's committed a sin and God goes to him um, uh, and, and, and talks to him. Um, God seeks out one of his sinning creatures and uses questions to try to get him to confess and repent. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance falling? Um, and if you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. If you don't do well, there's sin crouching. It has desire for you, and, it, and but you must master it. So just as the previous case with Adam, the Lord is not seeking information from Cain. He knows perfectly well why Cain's angry. This is not a, a seeking for information by God. He's seeking what is best for Cain, which is Cain's confession and repentance. And so at the end, though, he gives this warning. Sin is crouching at the door. Uh, this is the first word, mention of the word sin in the Bible. Um, so this is the, the Hebrew word hatat. Um, that's the word for sin. It has the Hebrew, in Hebrew it has the meaning missing the mark. Missing the mark. Uh, and the, it's translated into English sin. The Hebrew word that's translated as sin appears for the first time here. The New Testament Greek word, the New Testament equivalent, equivalent, uh, equivalent hamartano, uh, carries the exact same meaning, missing the mark. And so it's, uh, of course, in the Septuagint here, it's hamartano, um, in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. <clears throat> and then um, God tells Cain that it is essential to prevent sin from controlling him. You have to master it, he says. So, <clears throat> so then we see uh, Cain told, this is very uh, kind of a stilted translation in English, Cain told Abel's brother, uh, it really means he spoke to Abel's brother. Uh, but it doesn't, in uh, the Masoretic text, doesn't tell us what, it's, what he said. So he speaks to Abel's brother. Uh, the Masoretic text doesn't say. What, what did he say? It just says he spoke to him. Now, other things, the, the Septuagint, Samaritan Pentateuch and the Vulgate all provide words. Let us go out to the field. Go ahead. 
Excuse me. Back in verse 7 where it says sin is crouching at the door, does that imply that he was not sinning in the things he was doing before? Um, it does not imply specifically that, but it, it, supply, it, it implies in general that sin is something that is has a desire for him, um, it, that, that is coming after him in general, um, and that if he doesn't master it, if he doesn't do something about it, he's, he's going to have a big problem. But it, no, it doesn't speak to the fact that he may he, that he's probably had all kinds of sins in his life, just like we all do. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Martin Luther here, in his commentary on Genesis, uh, on this passage, says this. Had Adam and Eve suspected this, Cain's plan to murder Abel, they would not have permitted Abel to be in the field alone, but would have told his sisters, of whom beyond doubt he had by this time some, to accompany him. That's just Martin Luther making a speculation. But I thought it was interesting. So then we see how terrible sin had become. Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So he kills his brother, murders his brother. This was the first murder in recorded history, and it was a fratricide, a brother killing a brother. Um, and then, um, you know, then God asked him, where is his brother? But uh, this is the point where I want to go to the New Testament, where the New Testament talks about Abel. Uh, Jesus himself affirmed that Abel, first of all, he was a real person, and uh, was slain in real history, uh, which fact he used as part of his judgment of the evil generation of his day. So in Matthew chapter 23, he's talking, he's, woe to the Pharisees, woe to the Sadducees, woe to the, um, uh, the lawyers, Upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And so Jesus is using the, um, the Jewish Old Testament order there. So in the Jewish Old Testament, Genesis was the first book, and Second Chronicles was the last book. Second Chronicles was the last one in the Jewish Old Testament, and Zechariah is murdered in... Second Chronicles chapter 24. And so Jesus uses the beginning of the Old Hebrew Old Testament, the end of the Hebrew Old Testament. Abel killed first, Zechariah killed last in the Hebrew Old Testament. And the guilt he's putting on the, this current generation for all the righteous blood. But notice that Jesus himself declares that Abel was righteous. Righteous Abel. That's Jesus saying that. Righteous Abel. Now, uh, we also have in 1 John chapter 3, uh, the Apostle John says that we should not be as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brother's deeds were righteous. So action. Not just attitude. Action. Deeds. We have a very specific... New Testament passage that tells us that this is talking about deeds. Um, and so that's, this is how we can come to a full understanding of what's happening here in Genesis. If we read the passages in the New Testament that talk about this, then we get this fuller understanding of what's going on here. Uh, it wasn't just attitude. It was actually the deeds. The things that he did were evil. And the things that, before the slaying. So it says, why did he slay him? Uh, because, and the reason he did the slaying, the second sin, was because 
Cain's deeds were evil. The fact that he got the wrong sacrifice, evil. And Abel's deeds were righteous. The fact that he did the right sacrifice. In other words, he had faith in God. Abel did. And and his faith was credited to Abel as righteousness, just like Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And that faith was worked out in the actions or deeds that, in one case, Abraham did. In the other case, what Abel did. Yes. Uh, so it's talking about the, uh, the, 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 um, the modifier righteous is applied to Abel. So this is righteous Abel. Righteous Abel. And the reason he's righteous is because of his righteous deeds. And so what are his righteous deeds? Well, his righteous deeds, first of all, is his faith. First and foremost is Abel has faith that God's what God has said is true, that he needs to do these sacrifices, and these sacrifices need to be a blood sacrifice, and he does the sacrifice that God has told him. And so he has demonstrated faith, and he, he actually demonstrates this faith by an action, by doing the right sacrifice. Um, Abraham d- demonstrated his faith by God told him to leave his land of his birth. He left the land of his birth. He told him to go to a particular land. He went to the particular land. And so uh, faith and action are tied together. A faith out of faith proceeds righteous action. And we see that example here with Abel. And we'll later we'll see that example with Abraham. Um, and so, yes, but the root of the righteous action is faith. And so Abel, like everybody else that has ever lived and been saved, is saved by faith. Um, but it's the, he's described here as righteous Abel. Um, and he's described that way by Jesus. And then in 1 John, the Apostle John says that what was it that made uh, Cain evil and, and Abel righteous? It was Cain's evil deeds and Abel's righteous deeds. But remember that those deeds are uh, just a physical manifestation of his faith. And for Cain, it's a physical manifestation of his lack of faith. Yes, go ahead. I guess I just really want to understand because right at the beginning of Malachi, the Lord has always invited against the priests who are bringing sacrifices. They're doing the right type of sacrifice. Yeah. But with parts that are far yeah. and the and what they bring is blemished and it's terrible. And the Lord has a pretty severe indictment against them. Yep. I guess I just want to know with Cain, does it need to be that the sacrifice was wrong? Or or is there still room for interpretation that it it was that the sacrifice was um, from a heart far from him and in of itself not worthy, but the type was well, yeah, so um, so obviously there's a problem with his heart. Yeah. Uh, he, yes, he has a, he, the, the, the lack of faith is demonstrated. Uh, it comes out in his, in his deeds or actions. That analogy uh, breaks down, too, because they were specifically told uh, what type of animals to bring. And it was unblemished animals. So, so yes, they were, quote, doing the right thing. They really weren't. 
they were told what the right thing was. An unblemished animal, and they were bringing the blind and the lame. Yeah, so there, there is that additional thing in Malachi that, that it goes on to explain that they were not bringing the best of their flock. They were deliberately bringing the, the worthless ones uh, to the Lord. But, but uh, this is not ignorance. This is unrighteousness. Like, it's the same for them. There's no... Yeah, yeah. The so, parallel remains, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, oh, we're almost out of time. Let me hurry up here. Um, so as a, God holds court, just like he did in the Garden of Eden, he holds court. Um, he in, inquires of, uh, of Cain, hey, where's your brother Abel? Not looking for information. God knows perfectly well where Abel is and what happened. He knows everything. He's omnipresent and omniscient. He knows exactly what happened. He's giving Cain an opportunity to confess and repent. Uh, he starts with a question he already knows the answer to. Where's your brother? He gives Cain this opportunity to repent. And Cain... He, he answers in arrogance, um, uh, I, so he answers, I don't know. And it's the first outright lie recorded in the Bible, human lie. Um, I don't know. He actually knew, and he just lied to God, just lied right to God's face. Um, and then he asked the first human question recorded in the Bible, am I my brother's keeper, thereby showing arrogance, contempt, and defiance toward God. Really bad. Um, and his confession was not forthcoming, so God passes judgment. Hands down his sentence. Uh, we have the first biblical mention of blood. This is the first time the word blood appears in the Bible. Dom. Uh, here in verse 10 and 11. Uh, he says Cain, Cain is cursed from the ground. Uh, he won't be able to cultivate. It won't give uh, its strength. In other words, when he tries to grow stuff, it won't grow. Uh, remember, he was a farmer by trade, so this is a devastating punishment. Uh, so the final part is banish, uh, his punishment is banishment. You'll be a vagrant and a wanderer. But God shows mercy. Uh, because what did Cain deserve? He deserved death, uh, and we'll see that later that in Genesis chapter 9, God specifically appoints the death penalty for anybody that kills a human being, an image bearer of God. Uh, but God does not execute Cain. He shows mercy. Um, and so, and Cain whines, uh, Adam didn't protest his banishment. Cain, who's committed a much uh, greater sin here, in terms of the, uh, the, the physical effect of it, in terms of there's a, a dead person as a result of this particular sin, um, he immediately whines about his punishment. Uh, his arrogance and defiance turns into fear, and he complains, whines that his punishment is too great. Uh, notice that this is not repentance. He, he's whining about his punishment, not com- com- repenting about his sin. He's got remorse about being, having to suffer the consequences. Notice that. Notice that he's, he's still not repenting. He's still not saying, I, I'm a terrible, uh, I'm a sinner that's done this, and, and please forgive me. He's whining about the, having to take the consequences of his sin. Uh, remorse, not repentance. Uh, he shows mercy uh, by promising to protect Cain. So an additional mercy uh, that uh, Cain won't be immediately killed. Um, <clears throat> so he makes some sort of a sign to warn them off. So... Today, uh, we've learned, we've done this little bit of an overview of Genesis 4. We've seen that what happened to the first children and the first murder and God judging and banishing Cain. And we'll, we'll pick up the story there uh, next week.